Colin figured out buttons on his. <laughs> I've never, his, I've never bothered to, to look at this before. <laughs> this is kind of, oh boy. <laughs> Jesus, you hit fifty, Jesus. and you just turn, turn into. Like, you look like a grandmother who just figured out how to use filters on Zoom. <laughs> I'm a pirate. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Real DMC podcast. DMC stands for Dave, Marcus, and Colin. We're all here today. A couple of quick programming notes. As you know, Colin previously had selected True Romance as his 1993 movie and then immediately decided he didn't want to watch it. So our friend Jamie and Real DMC contributor has uh, volunteered to step in and fill the void. So a couple of us, we're not sure exactly who, will be doing a True Romance podcast with Jamie. So that'll be fun. Colin, do you think you want to participate in that? Well, didn't I decline to do it as my movie? <laughs> so why would why would I now want to do it? Is that an option? We can select the movie and the others have to do it and you don't have to? <laughs> I would like to do True Romance. Just not, you know, in the near future. It's happening in the near future, <laughs> dude. You can't stop it. What? Why not? Uh, why can't we just say, let's push it back? Yeah. We can do whatever we want. Well, at the end of this particular podcast, Marcus will be making his next movie selection. And one more programming note, which is we were going year by year and selecting a movie. Uh, after slogging through a couple of these early 90s movies, we decided screw that. And we are now just going to go to a uh, we're going to pick any movie. We're no longer constraining ourselves to uh, particular years. And we're just going to go DMC, Dave Marks, Colin. We'll each pick a movie and then it could be any movie. So at the very least, one of us should be interested in reviewing I would argue that the film we're watching today, none of us are probably terribly excited to review this film, but we can talk about it. You know, I would just like to point out the irony of stopping now when right before we get to 1994, which is, there's just tons of great movies. Oh, I'll be picking a great movie from 1994. So don't, do not worry. Oh, there's some, there's some real turds in 94 as well. But depending on your view, I might be picking one of those too. Well, speaking of turds. Uh, the, the film we are here to talk about today from 1993 the joel schumacher directed falling down bill foster is an ordinary man where are you going going home not this way or not why not metro rail construction that's why not living in the everyday world i don't suppose you have a couple of bucks you can give me it wouldn't really help me out if you give me your address i'll mail it back on us a patient man can i help you Yes, I'd like a ham and cheese omelet and wham fries. I'm sorry. We stop serving breakfast at 11.30. Who's running out of patience? I guess a change for the phone. A peaceful man. No change. I have to buy something. Who's about to be pushed? 85 cent, 85 cent. It doesn't give me enough money for the phone call. Drink, 85 cent. You pay a go. A little too far. I stay. Just standing up for my rights. As a consumer. Michael Douglas. In America, we have the freedom of speech, the right to disagree. Robert Duvall. I know who this guy is. In a Joel Schumacher film, Falling Down. Let's call it a day. Come on. I'm the bad guy? A tale of urban reality. The trailer's not even good. <laughs> Just a couple of quick uh, upfront notes in regards to the movie. It was relatively financially successful, so it made $39 million on a budget of $25 million. So it came in at number 36 for 1993, right behind What's Love Got to Do With It, and criminally, unfortunately, just above Hot Shots Part Due, which only made $38.9 million. And I think if we had to, the, the choice to go back and either 
select this movie to talk about and watch or Hot Shots Part Two, I, I'm guessing that we probably would have gone for the latter. What do you guys think? 100%. Of yeah. course. Yeah. It would have been much better. Uh, this movie maintains a what I think is a pretty generous 7.6 rating on the IMDb, oh, wow. so it's it's relatively <laughs> highly regarded. And if you go back and read the original reviews for this film, there was a, some debate at the time, but it was critically well-received for the most part. Lots of praise for Michael Douglas's performance in particular. And Michael Douglas himself has said that for a long time that this was his favorite overall performance. And Kirk Douglas, his dad, also said that this is what he thought was Michael Douglas's best performance. So... Um, and I think it's actually a really good performance for Michael Douglas. I think it's a weird movie wrapped around a good performance in some respects. I did pick this movie, so just as an explanation as to why I chose this. This was a movie that I recall when I watched it. I wasn't sure what I thought about it, so I thought it would be a curious rewatch. And I think in particular the way that society has advanced. I think going back and looking at it now, I thought it would be even more interesting. And I think it definitely it was. Meets, that, meets that criteria. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, let me say this, when you start to do a little bit of additional research about this movie, boy, does this movie make a lot of people mad out there. You can find a lot of very interesting articles. So, for example, there's one from April of 2017 written by April Wolf in LA Weekly. And the headline is, hey, white people, Michael Douglas is the villain, not the victim in falling down. And she says, uh, Schumacher's apparent insensitivity masks a fascinating experiment. These scenes seem to be designed to test how far down the road white or male viewers are willing to hitch a ride with this character before they realize, wait, he's not the good guy here. This is an interesting movie. Might be an interesting one to talk about. I don't know. What's your, uh, what are your opening thoughts, guys? Watching it here, it, it took less than one scene to, uh, like the first scene inside of the uh, convenience store. You're like, oh yeah, this guy's a total asshole. I'm not sure what I remember from before. I thought it was a good movie. Not even relating to or like uh, thinking of defense as a protagonist or as like a hero figure or anything, but just from, uh, I thought it was like a well-made, exciting, uh, tense and interesting movie previously. And none of that held up in this. It, it just was, it was terrible. It's like over the top. It was trying way too hard. It just throws in so much crap and none of it really worked in my view. Colin? I really did not like this movie when it came out and I've only seen it once. But watching it a second time, all I can think about is that uh, my wokeness came early as a young man. <laughs> no, um, I'm just kidding. Um, I don't even think you have to be woke to like not no, no. think he's a good character at all. No. Well, I, what I'm, my point being that I, I didn't like him back then. And it is such an interesting movie to watch today. No, it's, it's actually, I mean, I think, it, the, I think it's a fascinating movie today to watch today. The one thing that I think you're going to be surprised about is that I actually enjoyed this film. <laughs> and I think the person who's most surprised is me. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually liked it. I, I'm not typically a Joel Schumacher fan, but I thought this was a really well-made, entertaining film. And maybe it was just simply because of the fact that it is so interesting to watch it today that that I was really sort of, Right there for it. it was, I was just on the edge of my seat. Yeah, I thought the story overall and the like kind of scenes and stereotypes that it picks out are kind of it's a good storyline, good like kind of plot line. It touches on a lot of like different social issues, which I thought was good. I just think it didn't do any of that much justice at all in like like in any sort of view. Like it just kind of all fell flat to me. I think it's a really interesting movie, and I, I'll say that I enjoyed the process of rewatching it. So I, I was entertained. I was I was very engaged with the movie because I I couldn't quite figure out. This is one of those movies that 
I'm sitting there thinking, is this a is this a good movie? Is this a bad? Is this a really bad movie? I can't, is it wavering back and forth? I'm not really sure. So there's a little bit of a similarity, I think, in, in terms of how I I saw it the first time around. But I guess what I'm wondering now when I watch this movie is, what was Schumacher's actual intent? Like, I would love to understand that because I can't decide if he is embracing some of the satirical side of this or if some of those scenes are just incredibly tone deaf. I, I can't really figure it out. It reminds me a little bit of a Skyscraper with The Rock, right? Is it, a, <laughs> is, it, is it the worst tone deaf action movie ever made or is it kind of a brilliant satire? I'm not even really sure exactly what I think about this movie because I think it's more he was off base and, and tone deaf and didn't really, wasn't bought into sort of the more satirical elements of it, but... I don't know. I, I'm, I'm having a hard time figuring it out. Can you, can you give an example of what you thought was satirical? Just for so that I can understand that. You have this guy who you know go in, goes into the, the restaurant and it's three or four minutes past the time when he should be you know, served breakfast, right? right? So at that point, he's raging and you're like, okay, well then this is Schumacher making fun of somebody who's like an over-entitled asshole, right? That's, he's he's kind of glomming onto that. But then when you have him in the store, he's almost doing it as a pro-protagonist moment at, at that point. So it's almost like he's... So between those two scenes, on one side, it feels like he's more sympathetic to the character that Michael Douglas is playing. But then when he gets to the restaurant, it's obviously not because he's just being an asshole. Mm. That's funny because I took, I took those two scenes opposite. Like in the really? convenience store, I was immediately like, oh, this guy is a complete asshole. And then at Whammy Burger... Yeah, I gotta call the restaurant the proper name. Whammy Burger. Uh, I mean, who can't no relate? He can't relate to the before times when McDonald's did not serve breakfast all day. Who cannot relate to wanting an egg McMuffin and uh, they're being closed? I mean, that used to happen all the time. I, I I could relate to that situation. Now, pulling out a gun and shooting up the place, it's a little over the top. But you know, come well, on. And Marcus. everybody in this movie are so many of the of the just the bystanders in this movie are just absolute caricatures of people too. Oh, right? I loved it. So that was my actually well, that's my favorite scene. Yeah, so every, everybody's presented as an extreme example of whatever they're they were going for in terms of the their core personality. Like example, you know, the, you have the the two gay men that are in the surplus store. Like why those guys are even hanging out in there with this Wait a guy? minute, they're gay? Yes. You didn't pick up on that? Oh. Well, it, I was wearing my nipple shirt at the time. <laughs> They completely dress the guy up like it's a total caricature, right? So it's just there's so much of that. The, the, the assholes on the golf course are another perfect example, right? Like, could you could you have wait, a more wait. sort of no, entitled be- asshole like smoking his cigar? Get off my hole! He's not even a member. Look at the way he's dressed for Christ's sake! Would you get off my golf course? I am. So what do I pay my fucking dues for? This is my golf course. If I want to play here, I will play here. Nobody you understand? Said. If he gets hit with my Titleist, that's his fucking problem. Are you telling me that nobody wears a pink and purple plaid knit cap with a fuzzy ball on the top when they when they golf? And and the pink plaid pants and that's not a thing. Not for me, for my my typical golfing outfit. I'm not sure what yeah. you uh, have. But you're, no, you, you're absolutely right. Like everyone, he encounters that some sort of stereotype and over the top stereotype. The guy who wants to use the phone is like so incredibly rude. The guy, he like goes to a hundred immediately. Excuse me, excuse me. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but there's other people waiting to use the phone here. There are. Yeah. Other people want to use the phone. That's right, you selfish asshole. He's on the payphone for probably, what, 20 seconds? Yeah. And then he comes out, and then there's this just completely over-the-top rude guy. Yeah, And that's where I think it wasn't filmed well, because you don't even see that guy in the background when he's on the phone. There's no even indication that there's someone waiting for the phone. 
it's a 20 second phone call. He hangs up and this guy just goes berserk in his face, like shouting obscenities at him and a lot of weird scenes like that that just don't really fit together. Makes it very odd, I thought. Michael Douglas is was younger than Colin uh, was at the filming. And yet he looked older. Right, that's true. You do look good, yeah, Colin. Looking good. Well, so, so what did you guys think about Michael Douglas's performance? I remember watching it before. It seemed he was more sympathetic and the frustration kind of came through more. In this one, I didn't, I didn't pick up on that nearly as much. He seemed unhinged pretty quickly. I don't think it's like Oscar Academy... Award-winning, his role in, uh, in uh, Wall Street is definitely much better. I don't think it's his best role at all. I think he was quite good. I, I, I like your the way you remembered it and the, and the way you saw it now. Because I think that was, I had a similar experience. I think back in 93, I didn't have a lot of sympathy for him. I still don't. I mean, but, or maybe is that, that um, you, I thought I was supposed to have sympathy for him. And that's why I didn't, one of the reasons why I did not like the, the, the movie and when I watch it today, I like have zero sympathy right off the bat. And that's probably why I like this more. But I think I think he was really good. His performance is very good. And I think that's one of the reasons why I did like it a lot more this time around. However, personally, I think the MVP is Robert Duvall. It's so funny. Just the the trope of like retirement, and they just hit that beat like a hundred times. <laughs> the yeah, cops that's... last day, and they just dive in as hard as they can in that. It's hilarious. He's too old for this shit. The well, and then then his counterpart in terms of his wife, played by Tuesday Weld, she's she's high on the list of characters that I would like to punch. <laughs> I just like the. Oh my God, you are so annoying in this movie. I mean, and I understand that that's the role she's playing because she's playing kind of the crazy concerned wife. Another another over-the-top stereotype. I don't know. I don't really understand a lot of the the motivations for having that be such a be such a presence in the story as a as a story beat. I don't get it. It was kind of weird too because uh, Duvall is was sixty two when this was filmed. He looks like an old guy. Like he's him coming into the house. He looks like an old police officer because he was probably supposed to be like in his late 40s right yeah because it seemed like he was retiring early and everyone's like no no you should stay no like you you were a good cop once and now you're scared that whole storyline seemed weird because when you look at him he's like no he's like he looks like he's an old cop and he should retire now i don't he didn't look that old now my my mvp though for the uh, the movie was uh, sheila at the whammy burger oh it, yes well <laughs> sheila was great she was hilarious <laughs> and i think she's actually was she hitting on him? She was kind of like was she was smiling funny. at him a lot for sure. She was. She was, was, enjoy, she was enjoying the uh, enjoying the experience. Yeah, even after Strange he life. like shot up the place, she's still like, "You can call me Mrs. Foster." Yeah, <laughs> uh, she was great. She had Very a strange. she had a mouth on her that that Sheila, uh, I liked her. The only other person that I would highlight in the cast is Raymond Barry, who plays Captain Yardley, who's just, this guy is just an asshole as a captain. I mean, he's, <laughs> by the way, all the, most of the cops in this movie and, and most of the police work in this movie is just terrible. It's just flat out terrible. Well, he's like the only smart cop there. He and yeah. his, his ex-partner. I, I also did like Rachel Tacoten. I thought she was good in this. Didn't, didn't have a ton to do. So Raymond Barry playing the captain, I actually thought that he was Stephen Cahan, the same captain from Lethal Weapon 2, or Lethal Weapon 1 and 2. Like, I actually thought it was the same guy, just because I'm like, oh, there's there's the authoritative captain, dude. It was definitely the same LAPD that was in Tango and Cash. I think so, actually. The quality of the police work definitely aligns with Tango and Cash. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, that's a plot hole you can, like, drive a truck through. It's like, this guy shooting up places, causing major havoc and only one guy is actually even piecing it together 
I don't know. I mean, that's a purposeful message, right? Some empowered uh, or entitled white dude walking around doing a bunch of shit and getting away with it and just being able to keep walking down the street. There's some of that here. Especially considering the areas where these um, crimes are happening. Uh, of course, the, the cops aren't going to think it's uh, a, a, a middle-aged white man. Right. Do you think that's what he was going for? Do you think that was like actual commentary on it? Or do you think that just happened to work out in his favor? No, I think that's a straight up commentary because when the black man is protesting in front of the bank, he yeah, has he he's basically a mirror image of yeah. defense's outfit, right? I mean, down to even the tie is the same. So, you know, he's protesting and he gets picked up by the cops and thrown in the back of a cop car, right? right. Meanwhile, this other dude is just walking across LA, blowing shit up, shooting people, and he's unaffected by it. Yeah, exactly. Because if, if it, it was a middle-aged white man in a shirt and tie protesting out in front of the bank, they would never have arrested him. Number one. Yeah, it's a, it, there's this juxtaposition between black and white, between white and other. It's all throughout this this movie, which is why it was it, it really is so interesting to watch it, you know, in 2021 versus like 1993. Yeah, I just can't decide if it was on the nose and an effective commentary or if, it, if it's completely backwards and you have to interpret it differently than it was intended to get there. I just don't That's know. That's the thing. I just don't know. That's the problem I have it with it too. He's hitting on these social issues, but there's not a view on him. I think he's supposed to be the victim. I, I do. I, you think I defense think, is? Um, I think April Wolf is right. You think Schumacher relates to defense and is entitled guy speaking out to speaking the rights to the wrongs in the world? Schumacher's view. He's the victim because society has, is changing and it has changed. And, and guys like him, I mean, he's, you know, he's dressed like he's from the 50s or 60s. Like yeah. he looks like he's a he's NASA a, engineer. He's a defense worker. He's a, you know. You know, they had the good life in that era, but things are changing. He's not changed himself. Yeah, yeah he's an outdated defense contractor who, yeah. as the, the Cold War ended and you need to build so many weapons those people ended up being out of a job and not having a skill set that was easily transferable. And he looks around him, you know, he ends up in the middle of downtown LA in some of the seedier parts. And it's not just that they're, they're seedier parts. It's just that they are more low income and he looks around, no one looks like him. Everyone's a person of color, lots of minorities. He, he hasn't come to terms with his place in society. And unfortunately he doesn't deal with it very well. He should have moved up to uh, San Jose and gotten into the uh, disc drive uh, business. So much, much more. <laughs> Besides, people from Minneapolis really enjoy San Jose. So it's apparently a hot place to go. That's exactly. <laughs> I love San Jose. Um, <laughs> Please see the yeah. End of Line of Fire podcast for further information. The, uh, and for reference, my dad was a uh, defense worker. For, um, I would say that's the other thing that is distracting is that Michael Douglas's character in this movie does look an awful lot like the dad of one of our friends growing up. Like oh, almost, he's almost like a dad. Oh, it's the same oh, name. He dresses, he dresses exactly like my dad would yeah. dress to IBM. Your dad worked at IBM, right? Yeah. 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 That's exactly like pretty much how my dad, like, yeah, in the 70s. I did like the look because uh, literally he looks like he should be, you know, straight out of Apollo 13 yeah. and uh, <laughs> in the command center. Speaking of which, I, di I did um, no research, and I'm making this up on the spot. I think Ron Howard watched this movie, and he heard his uh, thing about no going back, about the Apollo 13 mission. He had a little speech in there about the... Uh, I would totally thought about that, too. <laughs> I totally thought... I, well, I Ron just, Howard's least... like, I'm going to... I had to look up. I'm like, when was Apollo 13 made? It was like two years after this. <laughs> It'd be kind of funny if that was true. <laughs> He's like, watching this. We should do a movie about that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, looking at uh, Schumacher, just t- touching on a couple pieces. Looking at Schumacher's career, there's almost nothing that he he's made that I actually kind of like. Lost Boys, I think, is the only one on the list that I would even consider a movie I enjoy. I know Colin has a largely negative opinion on Schumacher, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I think he's uneven. That's kind of how I would describe him. So you know, I think he's either there's the good and the bad version of Schumacher, and of course, the ba- Batman and Robin is uh, is bad. So what are the good <laughs> okay, movies? What, you, you know, say. so we, we, we did talk about this a little bit on some other podcasts. Flatliners? But, um, I would say, yeah, Flatliners. <laughs> which which is a good that, movie. St. Amal's Fire? You, was that the good Tiger movie Land. that you like? Tigerland. I liked yeah, Tigerland Tiger a lot. I rewatched 8mm recently, and I actually liked it. But not to say that it's a good film, but it's really an interesting film with some good and bad, very bad performances. Um, I haven't seen A Time to Kill in quite some time. Uh, I'd like to rewatch that one. But I know Jamie, you know, he thinks that that's probably Schumacher's best movie. I did see The Client, movie based on a John Grisham novel. That was very problematic. And Dying Young, oof, <laughs> Flatliners. The Lost that's- Boys, I, mi- I missed rewatching that in 1987. So I, I don't have an opinion on it. And then, at, you know, Dave, you love St. Elmo's Fire. Uh, yes, I am not a fan of St. Elmo's Fire. We do have a St. Elmo's special. You can go back and listen to Dave rant for 15 straight minutes about how terrible it is. <laughs> and and then maybe the worst film I've ever seen with, uh, you know, live and in person with Dave, Batman Forever. No, or did we see Batman Forever or Batman and Robin together? Maybe both? I don't know. No, you know what? It was Batman and Robin. <laughs> yeah, Batman and Robin. Well, he did both, so. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so overall, uh, we're uh, not not uh, not coming in strongly for uh, as pro Schumacher. <laughs> That's how I summarize things. What do you think of Barbara Hershey? I I thought she was bigger than she was. You know, for that line of work, I thought you'd be bigger. <laughs> Gee, I've never heard that before. <laughs> no, <laughs> just more like well-known and well-known movies that she'd done in the past, and then looking through her. Uh, her her past beaches yeah she it was not a it was not a hit list of movies that i i actually think it's a really good performance from her she sells the i'm scared of my husband vibe really well and it it also feels somewhat realistic the police in terms of how they respond to her concerns though again just terrible if a killer is calling and threatening somebody's wife maybe even if it's happened if you sent two squad cars out there the first time you could probably send a third one if you think the guy's going that direction i don't know it seems like an odd policy wasn't impressed with the cops in this movie at all no, the, the cops are a joke all righty let's jump into the movie guys what about that Starting with him in the car, I assume you guys maybe read the trivia note, but I actually went back and looked at this. Apparently it was specifically set up to be an homage to Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half. And so I went and watched the, the opening three minutes of Eight and a Half just to see what it was like. And sure enough, yeah, both cars underneath overpasses. In uh, Federico Fellini's version, the guy gets out of the car and he floats away into the sky. A little different this time around. Mm, I, I missed that. I, uh, I, I've only seen... Um... Seven and a half. So seven. Okay, so you have one more to go. No, I've never seen. I've never seen any Fellini films. Uh, I've only seen little bits and pieces of Fellini films. It was a 1978 Chevy Chevette. Is that what he's driving? I believe so. Well, it's no wonder he went postal. <laughs> I just I like that scene though. I like the way that it's, you know, his eyes are darting around and the sweat's building up. It, it does feel hot when you're looking at it. It pans over to Garfield, so another another Garfield that shows up in the movies we've watched. So if you guys recall, there was one on the window of the plane in Hot Shots. So this is a this is a hot Garfield period in history. <laughs> and then of course there's a huge American flag, which I think is there intentionally, right, to try to say 
message of you know this is America or current state of America. That was that was how I took it. It's I, I don't know, I think that's a pretty effective scene. I, I like the opening. Uh, I thought it was I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was it did set the mood and tone and kind of gave you a feel for it. Um, one of the things I did not like throughout the movie was the use of signs and posters and the cutting to everything. I thought it was just way too overt and just. If you didn't get what we're doing here, here's a sign that says, kill, kill, kill. If you forgot that he was going home to see his daughter, here's a poster that says, I love you, daddy. On and on and on. There was a uh, billboard, so going back to the white, like white is for laundry. And there's a billboard with that. And there's just so much messaging and so much obnoxious symbolism that was just forced into the movie. It could have been done in a lot more subtle way and I think would have been more effective. In the hands of a different slash good filmmaker... Yeah. Like Oliver Stone, I think he would have done a much better job with the imagery. <laughs> I don't know about that. And Oliver Stone t- tackling this particular script would have been that would have been a, a fat, would have been an interesting movie actually. Maybe we'll discuss that in our next podcast. We'll see. Okay. I know I know where you're leading us with your pick, unfortunately, but I know where I, we're going. I think one of the reasons I, I really did not like it back in 93 was that uh, specifically that all the choices that he makes I just don't understand. I don't care how bad of a day I'm having and how hot it is and how like uh, annoyed I am at everything that's going on around me. I would never just get out of my car and abandon it and start walking away. Well, I think you also have, are somebody who has not quite snapped yet, right? So I think that's the other thing you need to take into consideration. Because I, know. I don't think he was making it as a rational decision at that moment. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing you have to that you realize, I guess, later on is that, yeah, there's a lot more that contributed to his state of mind up to that point that you haven't even seen yet. So I guess the question is, is this the starting point of his declaration of being a victim? He lost his job at the defense contractor. That's what you find out a little bit later in the movie. And so this is just an example of where he got to a few weeks after that, where he feels so betrayed by that. And at the end, you know, he has a speech in terms of he says that he did all the right things. Now now he's out of a job. No, I think he was just a fucking dick. At the end of the movie, he's in his wife's house and he's watching these home movies and he's realizing, I sound like a dick. Like, I guess I've always been a dick. Yeah, yeah he has that realization moment. The way that he's going to resolve that is basically murder-suicide on his wife and daughter. Right. Yeah. So he's I mean, an asshole. He's an entitled prick. His assholeness is partially coming from the fact that he deserves it, or he believes that he should not be in the state that he's in right now because of who he is, right? And the fact that he did the right things. The the quote unquote right things. Yeah. I mean, this movie just kind of beats, beats you over the head with that. Yeah. I did think the opening scene in the abandoning the car, if you've ever been stuck in LA traffic, you can kind of relate to that. I just want to get out of this fucking car and leave. Oh, no, I, that like, I get. I mean, the, yeah. and that's that's one of the reasons why I thought that scene was effective, because I think I the, the feeling of compression and heat and his like, building frustration, I think it's all, it's done pretty well. Like, fuck this, I just want it all walk. Yeah. I, I can I can see that as being like, it's not rational, but I can see that as a actual thought and someone being like, you know, fuck this. He ends up jumping out of his car and then he walks up over the hill Throughout the movie, he makes a series of calls to his wife, and initially he's you know doing it, and he's just staying on the line, and uh, but not talking. She knows that he's calling, and it also establishes that she is his ex-wife. So start kind of sets up the some of the initial conflict. But he needs change, so he goes into a grocery store. The cashier does not give him change for his dollar, and at that point, they get into this confrontation, and he starts walking around the store with his baseball bat. I'm not the thief. I'm not the one charging eighty-five cents for a stinking soda. You're the thief. Just standing up for my rights as a consumer. I'm rolling back prices to 1965. What do you think of that? Donuts. Package of six. How much? Dollar twelve. 
Is that really too much for those donuts? No, that's a good, I, that's a total deal. I thought that was a reasonable price for the donuts, so I'm not sure. Of, of all the things he's smashing in the store and getting frustrated about, I thought, I thought the donuts were okay. Was now, are they, little, are they little chocolate donuts? I think they were little uh, powdered donuts, actually. Three-pack or a yeah. six-pack? If it's a three-pack, maybe it is too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a longer sleeve of donuts. I'll have to go back and verify. And that's a scene where like, I, I was completely lost on him as the kind of hero of the story or whatever he's supposed to be. He's not a good guy in that scene in any sense. Just from mocking the guy's accent, he simply loses it so quickly. <laughs> like, I, I was like shocked by it, actually, when I watched it. Why not just buy something cheaper? <laughs> Did you have to? What is the Coke? There's a million things in that store. A lot of things less than the 85 cent Coke. Life has sped past him and he's angry and he's yeah. just going to take, because what's he ranting about? The price of a Coke? And yeah. he's saying like, let's go back to like 1965 prices. He's stuck in the past. I get that. But do you think Schumacher, I guess this is just, I have this question throughout most of this movie, which is, do you think Schumacher was also trying to somehow take a sympathetic edge to him being frustrated? I mean, someone's taken a shot at the Korean grocers, right? And the idea that they're inflating prices. I don't know. I'm trying to decide if he's trying to make a point that that is true or he's expressing sympathy for that. If he is, then he's like, it's a pretty racist point of view. No, I know. That's exactly what I'm saying. He says you need to pronounce the V in five. Drink, 85 cent. You pay a go. What's a phi? I don't understand a phi. There's a V in the word. It's five. Uh, you don't got V's in China? Not Chinese. I'm Korean. Uh, whatever. You come to my country, you take my money, you don't even have the grace to learn how to speak my language. I mean, he takes a very kind of racist shot at the guy's uh, use of language. I don't know that that whole scene is set up to make Michael Douglas seem like the bad guy, the real bad guy. I think it, it kind of has like a sympathetic edge to some of his actions in the scene, which is, I think, what's weird about it. I, I agree. I think that it was written, at least in the, certainly in the beginning, to be sympathetic. And I have no sympathy for this character at all. Right. You know what, dude? Deal with it. Just everything that's happening, deal with it. Yep, buy a pack not, of gum. It's not the Korean grocer's fault, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean that's and don't go ranting about the prices there. You have no idea what this guy's situation is. He's probably the only store in the neighborhood because a lot of people don't want to open up a store because of crime. You know how many times has he been robbed? You right. know, but he's still there. He's providing a service to the community. Yes, prices may be higher on certain items. My point being that this is how an entitled white man thinks about the Korean grocer. He has no idea what, in fact, the reality is to be the Korean grocer in that community. I get that. And I think this movie is definitely, you can interpret it that way. I just don't know. I don't get the sense the way that it was shot, that that was the angle that showed. No, I don't think it was at all. (laughs) Which is why, which is why I'm saying like, I don't have any sympathy for him. Right. For the character, for Bill. It does switch back to the police station. This is where you're introduced to the Robert Duvall character who plays Pendergast. So, Colin, you said that you think he's the MVP, so I'm curious why. I just could watch Robert Duvall all day. I think that's really the only reason why. (laughs) He's smart. He seems like he he actually cares. He's got an interesting situation because you can tell that he doesn't really want to retire. I feel for this guy. And he he seems like he's actually a good cop. He puts two and two together. He wants to do right. And it's Robert Duvall. I love Robert Duvall as an actor, and I love watching Robert Duvall. I actually love listening to Robert Duvall speak. Absolutely. I just, I love his voice. 
the whole subplot with yes he's retiring and yes he's being forced into retirement because his wife is kind of losing it the tuesday weld performance here as his wife is just super annoying so I, and i don't know that necessarily the way that he interacts with her does much for his character yes he stands up to her at the end but i don't know i just think the whole thing's a little bit forced i agree could cut the entire reason for his retirement this it would not affect this movie at all and it would make it better i think ultimately agree there 100 percent Every yeah. time his wife calls, that's the point where it's like, oh no, can you actually just get back to the the police work? Right. And then of course, I think it's a little problematic at the end where he stands up to her because it's almost like he's saying to her, this is how a husband treats his wife. I'm laying down the law. And then she totally backs off. And I didn't like that. Yeah. yeah. You could, you could cut all that stuff and it would be a better movie. Please remove Tuesday Wald from this movie and it'll be better. No, that's my quick take that. So you were you were annoyed by her. I was super annoyed by her. Yeah, well, then no. I think she did a good job. I mean, no, no, are you no, saying no, actually take, I'm not, take the I'm character not. out or take Tuesday Weld out? You know, what she did with the character and as a performance, I think is good. So it's not that. I just think that the character plays a a meaningless function in this movie and is not needed to for in any way to set up tension within Pendergast. Doesn't make any sense to me. It's not not effective. I guess the only point of that was to set him up for being like sort of uh, deemed in the eyes of the other cops as being a coward. And he, you know, he like, he had gotten shot once before. And so now he's on desk duty and he, and he's afraid to go out on the streets and, and that's why he's retiring early. Meanwhile, none of that's true at all, but right. um, it's just because of honoring his wife's wishes and he wants her to be happy and not worry about him. I think she's got some other shit going on as well, though. So I don't think ultimately that's going to help. But um, yeah, I, you you think that they probably maybe could have come up with something a little different that didn't involve his wife. It, there's too much of it, I guess, as a time prioritization within the movie. Maybe he shot a kid. He can't bring himself to pull his gun. And then there's like this incident at Nakatomi Plaza. Oh, Nakatomi Plaza. <laughs> and, and then, oh, different movie. A different way. Well, at least we got our diehard reference in. From here, then it cuts to you see Michael Douglas sitting on a he's sitting on a rock in the middle of a field, and he's looking through the hole on something, and it, it pulls back, and he's looking through a hole in his shoe. So you see him taking some newspaper and putting putting that in his shoe. So this is a nice way to kind of say, yeah, this guy's struggling financially, right? Because he's wearing shoes that have a hole in them. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He's literally been out of a job for one month. Yeah, that was actually my point too. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't. I, I really don't get that at all. How how could you wear a hole in a shoe that big that quickly in one month? I know, right? <laughs> no, I, like, I'm not, I took it a different way. At some point later in the movie, police officer is talking to his ex-wife and says, you should call your attorney. She says, I don't have one because I, I don't have a lot of money. All right. The, the, the divorce has really put a strain on both of their finances. And I think the shoe is just reinforcing that he didn't. He, they were not financially sound to begin with, right? Which I think is also another reason for increased pressure here. And why do you think that was? Maybe he was blowing it all on the ponies. Or possibly just spending it all on hats. <laughs> so, not really uh, sure. Oh, boy. He, well, he obviously had some. He had to have had some other vices because I think of, as we have established, he's a dick. So then he's approached by two members of what I would assume to be the casting department's view of stereotypical Hispanic gangsters, because this looks like pretty bad typecasting from a caricature standpoint. But that was everyone in the movie. It was just bad. Is it done intentionally bad across the board or is it just bad? I think it's just bad. I took it as not intentional because the way like the rest of the movie is also shot, just way too much 
in your face. I want to get this message across. I think he was trying to send a message and trying to say something and it just failed, like trying too hard, basically. He wants to say something, but instead of saying the overly specific thing, it's like somebody just going, something, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, yeah. I'm delivering message. What message are you delivering? Well, not exactly sure. Yeah. The, the, I think the only thing that's over the top about this particular scene is that the, the, the conversation that they have and, and telling him that he's going to have to pay a toll. In, in reality, these guys would have walked up to him and just stuck a knife in his face and you know demanded his money. Yeah. Right. I mean, come on. He should have just given, him, given them the briefcase and then yeah. they would have walked away and had lunch. He had an apple. He had, he had crackers. Yeah. <laughs> What's in the briefcase? Crackers. <laughs> I, I questioned why they followed him to begin with because here's a guy walking around normally i'd say like yes he sticks out like a thor sorry a sore thumb he also happens to be holding a bat in his hand i wondered that too but he did have it kind of like held with with the briefcase so you, you might be able to skip by that like the way it was like he's holding them both together so maybe it was also, wouldn't you think that their interpretation would be that possibly he's attached to law enforcement in some way? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. He looks too square totally. to be law enforcement, though. I think you can get a law enforcement hit off of him for sure. Then again, he wasn't wearing a, a jacket, so you could clearly see he didn't have a holster or anything. And yeah. So yeah, no true. weapon, except for the bat in his hand. I think it's kind of interesting that like they have him like upgrading throughout. The that was going to be my next point is that this 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 movie is basically a video game where he has yeah. power ups along the way because yeah, he, he keeps going through. You know, he, he gets the bat first from the Korean grocery store. Then he steals a knife from the gangsters. Then he gets the full bag of guns from the gangsters and then he gets a rocket. So it's, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> video game pacing as he goes through it. He has different yeah. little boss fights or different encounters and then. He gets his power up. It's, just, it's Wait, super. So you didn't. You guys didn't see 1995's Nintendo falling down video game? <laughs> no, no, that would be yeah. <laughs> and maybe they were hoping for that at the uh, at the end. You know, they make movies to like mirror yeah. a video game afterwards. Could be. Maybe this is what brought on uh, Grand Theft Auto. Maybe Grand yeah. Theft Auto falling down version. I'm glad it ushered in the era of all day breakfast. That's really the the benefit from this movie. We don't want another one of those incidents like what went down at Whammy Burger. <laughs> I really have no sympathy for him in that scene either, dude. It's no. already it's eleven thirty. It's cl the signage is clear. No breakfast. You know, breakfast till eleven thirty. <laughs> okay, it's eleven thirty. Why do you still want breakfast? Just get lunch. Do you know what's going on back in the kitchen? They've put all the breakfast stuff away. They're not actually cooking it anymore. This right. is why they have a cutoff. So come on, man. When the manager tells her to turn around and grab breakfast, she does go right to a set of pre-available or predefined boxes that are there. So apparently there might've been some lingering breakfast that was still available. You know, in terms of conflict resolution, maybe, um, was it Rick? Rick could have trained his staff a little better and said, if somebody asked for breakfast after 1130, you could say, well, we're not taking breakfast orders anymore, but we do have a few different things that have already been made. Would you like to select one of those? You know what? You got to do some customer service training. That might be your, this, this may be your hidden calling right here. <laughs> I did work in client services, so. That's true. Yeah, the power up thing is a good point, Marcus. I mean, we can talk about the rocket when we get there, but that, that's a little bit over the top. <laughs> when, as soon as he pulls out a rocket, eh, how realistic is this movie supposed to be? Yeah. And that's, they, that, that's the other question I had. How, how much of this is sort of like a weird, there's a fable edge to it or something? Yeah. Also, that scene is so ridiculous because then like the kid, the teenager on the bike 
telling him how to do it. I do think that was, was pretty funny. I actually. thought it was I hilarious. That. It was yeah, funny, but, but then he's like, oh, because you're shooting a movie. But then I have to tell you how it's all working and there's no cameras. Yeah. I don't know. It just. It was it was like, really? But then it was funny. Yeah. Of course, what I questioned was he's pointing it down and it accidentally goes off. It would explode. Missiles, rockets, they don't hit a tunnel and then change direction and, and follow the tunnel all the way to the end. That made zero sense. I'm still entertained by this movie. I just want to point that out. I was definitely entertained. I question the end result versus what was intended, 1993 versus viewing it now. It feels like it's two different movies in two different times, and I'm totally unclear as to what the actual real intent was. Yeah, I mean, again, but that's that another reason why I, I enjoyed watching it. Because I, I do think they intended it to be different. And when you look at it through the lens of today's world, <laughs> it was just like, wow, huge misfire. Right, I know, yeah. The gangsters find him again, and they attempt a drive-by shooting. They're terrible at drive-by shootings because he's standing there with his back to them at a phone, and they shoot two or three other people standing right next to him. Whoever is driving the car in the drive-by shooting is, is not the guy you want as your wheelman because he just randomly turns a corner and then smashes into another car. And based on the way that that car hit, like the level of impact, he must have accelerated to 70 or 80 miles an hour when he turned the corner. I don't know. The whole, the whole scene is pretty goofy. He got excited about the action. The action is the juice. He just started. <laughs> he started going for the drive, and he's like, "Whoa, this is fun. Let's go!" <laughs> and just turned it on. But it's just a car packed full of stereotypes. <laughs> Speaking stereotypical oh, totally dialogue. Is. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the scene, too, he just walks up. This so the car has crashed. There's, I think, a lot of people out. It's hard to tell if there are people. You would think they're in the middle of downtown LA or wherever they are. Is a very busy streets. And then he just walks up to the car, grabs the bag, has a conversation with the guy, tries to shoot him, shoots him in the leg, then ends up walking off. And then everyone, no one stops him. No one says like, oh, hey, like there the guy is. He's walking off that way. It's like they could catch him. He's just walking away. Why didn't he kill him? Let me ask you that. He's willing to do it 10 minutes later. I think that's also the escalation, right? So in the uh, convenience store, he just beats the uh, clerk. In this one, he just wounds him. And then in the uh, surplus supply store, he actually ends up shooting him. So it's the same progression of he's getting more violent as the day goes on. Agreed. When he calls his wife and he talks about the Apollo 13 reference, it's, it's because he's crossed the line on murder. Yeah, exactly. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He did actually commit assault with a deadly weapon and potentially um, attempted murder. So probably shouldn't have, shot, shouldn't have shot the guy. But Now, if you shoot him in the leg, is it true that you don't get hit for attempted murder? I don't know. I'm, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I saw that reference in some movie. I don't know if it's true or not. You don't take your legal lessons from movies because I don't know if you've ever seen Double Jeopardy. Um, <laughs> but, but it's like, okay, that's actually not Double Jeopardy. There's no, there's no loophole. Crimes are based on the individual incidents. So yes. if you murder one person or attempt to murder them and then go back and murder them later, two different crimes. Right. All right. So they, they do cut back to the police station and Pendergast is there. And this is where the captain gives him, again, kind of the most stereotypical captain police interaction. You know, I have to give you the speech. You're going to retire. You've been, and then he says something like, you know, you've been up to your ears in human scum 16 hours a day. It's just so 80s, early 90s cop talk. <laughs> that was what that exchange feels like. The one thing that I thought was funny, the captain knew he was giving this speech. 
and like even kind of called out like, oh, I'm supposed to give you this speech. Well, I think from a management perspective, he's a really terrible captain. <laughs> that show through when, him when he's looking through his notes. Yeah. And your he's he's got to, yeah, like, how are your kids doing? Uh, she's dead. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, oh, damn clerk. <laughs> put the wrong thing in the file. He basically knows hardly anything about the people who work underneath him. <laughs> One thun- funny thing in the LAPD earlier, like they're all giving him a bad time because it's his last day and they're retiring. <laughs> and they're all laughing about another officer who died on his last day. Like, I know, right? <laughs> oh, isn't that funny? This guy died on his last day. It's he just very had strange. T- two hours to go and he got hit by the car. <laughs> he got hit by a car. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> All of the police office interaction is super weird. The partner that Rachel Tickton's character picks uh, up he, at one point. He was funny. <laughs> Mr. Smiley, smarmy. There's no human being that exists and acts like this guy does. He walks out of the restaurant they were eating at and there's like a table of uh, um, young ladies. <laughs> hey, ladies, how are you? <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, ladies. It's like, you know, just, I don't know. On, I think, there, I think like, there are probably some pretty annoying people out there yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah. He's, a, he's a pretty bad character, actually. I liked how the, um, the the filmmakers were trying to maybe make a, a statement where um, the Asian American police officer introduces yeah, yeah. the Korean store owner. He says, what, what's he saying? And then he, he says, he's like, um, he's Korean. He's like, I'm Japanese. I don't know what he would be saying. Like, he's Korean. I'm Japanese. Meanwhile, the actor who plays the Japanese police officer is Korean. Right. <laughs> Just like, okay, well, I think he sort of missed the mark there. Another thing, just in terms of his walking across the city, he has a couple interactions with the the traffic road workers. Every single person who's working in, on the roads in Los Angeles is just a complete asshole. What are you doing to the street? We're fixing it. What the hell does it look like? Two days ago was fine. You telling me the street fell apart in two days? Well, I guess so. They're all power tripping. They're just complete dicks. I think Joel Schumacher must have had some sort of an interaction with somebody who was working on the street and it scarred him for life or something. I'm not sure because everybody's an asshole. Weren't they all white as well? Was he trying to make some sort of statement like even the white people are mean to are mean to this character? I I, I don't know. Or he's either going for that or he's just trying to show that every interaction he has with people is a, a negative one. Yeah. Well, and speaking of that, so he has the interaction with the homeless guy in the park. And this is another example of where I think that people are watching this interaction and they're going, yeah, good for you, dude, for calling out the homeless guy and, and because you don't want to be hassled. The way that, that that sequence is shot, I really do think that it's much more sympathetic towards Michael Douglas's character than the homeless guy. Like, I think it's, it's actually really pro his actions at that moment. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah. This is one of those things where it's kind of sliding back and forth in terms of, you know, what are you really trying to do? And then this leads to the him entering the Whammy Burger restaurant and his demand for breakfast. I hadn't seen this movie in like almost 30 years. I didn't remember what was going to happen. After he was sitting on the hill and he got accosted by the two gang members, he, he said a line, something about, oh, well, if I'm supposed to read the signs, then why aren't they in English? I just started thinking, oh, this, you know, he's anti He's like... um this whole like anti-immigration, anti-person right. of color. I'm thinking like he's the type of guy who would just go out, buy an AR-15 and hundreds of rounds of ammunition and then mow down a bunch of people in a fast food restaurant. And then that's almost exactly what happens. <laughs> right. So he enters the fast food restaurant, demands breakfast, does have some pretty funny interaction with Sheila and Rick. Why am I calling uh, you some... by your first names? <laughs> 
<laughs> some of the dialogue back and forth and just kind of the intensity that he's radiating i think it's a really good performance i think it's compelling like he's he's interesting michael douglas is very interesting to watch during that scene the the writing was just okay i think on that one that was the better writing. There's other spots where the writing is just horrible, I thought. There were certain moments inside the restaurant that I did like. So one was he shoots the ceiling and then you hear him yell something like, okay, wait, everybody, let's get organized. Like that's, <laughs> that's what he says to the group. And so he's, she's trying to tell him not to panic. That You know, we got this all under control, but I just think the way that it's like, let's get organized. I, I like that. I thought that was a funny line. And I do like as it's panning around the restaurant, there's one scene where you see a woman who just has like a hamburger in mid-bite and she's frozen and she has like the hamburger still halfway in her mouth. So that was good. Uh, I forget what he says. He He's asked a question. You see the kid slowly raise his hand like he's going to answer like he's in class. So I like that. So there's a few things in that scene that I like. There's one of the better scenes in the movie for sure. But do you think that the way they wrote it, this was their way of trying to elicit some sympathy for him? He's not all that bad. Look at him. He's, you know, he's going to actually pay for his meal. And, you yeah. know, he's being the crowd, even though he's holding everyone at gunpoint. Yeah, I don't know. But it was entertaining. Yeah, I think they wanted to lighten it a little bit with that scene. But then also, I do think they want the sympathy from him. Or you're thinking in that scene, he's not really going to hurt anybody. That's your view. And also, like, when he goes into the doctor's house, the kid, he's not going to hurt the kid that he's holding the hands with. So a similar view, you have this sense of, like, oh, he's not evil, but then he is. So there is that line that Dave's been talking about of, like, is he sympathetic? Is he not? Is he the bad guy? Is he not? Because maybe it's just superficial, because I think up to this point, who, who has he hurt? Gang members, right? Anybody else? Did he hurt anyone else? Well, he hurt, I mean, he's hurt, hurt and traumatized the store owner. Yeah, the... the uh... So the people that he hurt... We're all people of color. Now, yeah. granted, a bunch of them were gang members who tried to kill. Him. So, okay. But Korean store didn't do anything to him. You get into the um, the whammy burger. A lot of white faces in that crowd. A lot of white faces behind the behind the uh, counter. Yep. And then you get to the the doctor's house next to the country club. That's a white family. Well, I'm just saying that like the only people he ends up hurting in this were people of color. And that yeah. he, he didn't, he didn't hurt. In fact, he almost, especially Even with the, the, the family the, the, and the pool, that they're a white family. And he was almost sort of shocked that, that they thought that he was going to hurt them. Yeah. Right. Although he did murder a white supremacist. Yeah. But that guy had it coming to him. He was basically <laughs> going to rape him. <laughs> but, but that's an interesting scene too. Yeah, which we, well, we'll talk about in a minute. I guess the other question I had was, initially, doesn't it feel like they're also sympathetic towards his, I should be able to get breakfast and the customer's always right in, in the beginning? Or do, you, or do you think they're doing that to paint him in a negative way? Because again, I can't really tell. It feels like I, I could go either way on that. It's like, yeah, you're right, man. Get what you get what you deserve. Or are they just setting it up because, okay, this is the perfect example of some dude being over-entitled? Over-entitled. You think so? I think it's a little of both. I think they're trying to bring you in to his view slightly. You can relate to the you wanting breakfast all day. It definitely was a thing prior to whatever, a couple of years ago that McDonald's actually changed it. But I think that that is a slight aspect of sympathy they're trying to pull on. But obviously yeah. then shooting up the place. And or maybe it's that they're just trying to show him as still being somewhat rational. You know, he's thinking through this argument about... The customer's always right, and he's very calm about it. I don't know. Maybe it's just more for the the comedy. All I can think about was, dude, just get a fucking hamburger, all right? It's past eleven thirty. <laughs> well, the guy's actually unstable, so don't go try and shooting your ex-wife and kid. <laughs> it's a lot of money. <laughs> 
Well, how about this? When do you think he decides uh, over the course of the movie that he's actually going to kill him? I don't the think very end. Yeah, until the, no. when he shoots a cop. I still don't know that he was that he even thought he was going to do it. I think it would have been a, something like the, at the literally before he does it. Because I actually think that when he encounters the family in the plastic surgeon's house and he's talking to them and he's talking about what's going to happen when he gets home and it's her birthday and he says that we're all going to lay down in the dark and go to sleep. I think at that point he's oh. already decided that he's going to kill her. May have missed that. Yeah. No, I remember the 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 line, but I did not uh, I did not connect it. So that's actually a good yeah. uh, good view. In terms of progressing, he sees the guy on the street in front of the bank protesting. You know that that moment I think is kind of interesting. That's Fondy Curtis Hall. Yeah, but I was trying to think. What was the last thing I I saw him? He was in, Die I Hard Two. He was. Uh, he is in Die Hard Two, right? Yeah, he's Hard. actually. He's the one who screwed up and, and gets the gun to his head. And gets the gun to his head. Yeah. There are multiple references in this movie to the fact that cops are being killed or cops getting killed. And one of them is just in the Mexican restaurant when he's having lunch with his partner. The waitress says, and he, you know, he says, oh, I'm retiring. And her response is, oh, well, cops get killed. Yeah. Because he also looks in the, the so newspaper. He looks in the newspaper yeah. and he sees the article. I think they're just trying to ratchet up the, the tension and, and for the audience to think that Robert Duvall ultimately is going to die at the end. I think that's it. It didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. They just really want to make sure you got the his retirement trope. He might die. Okay. Last day of work. Last job. Yeah. You know, he had written this entire book on, and he was going to expose who killed JFK, but he was just waiting until he retired to publish it. <laughs> One last job. He told his wife, oh, no, the insurance papers, uh, I'll just sign them when I get home from, from work on my last day. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing that's interesting throughout this movie is why does nobody believe him? Because he, he has basically a couple of good data points right now where guy has done this. He's dressed the same. Nobody wants to hear he's anything a- that he has to say. I understand that's a trope, right? In terms of the, the one person who has the knowledge and no one's buying into it. I just don't understand why you have to hit it so hard here. Because he has like good information, right? And I understand it's probably because they just want to figure out a way to make him or set it up so that he has the solo encounter at the end of the movie. But it just seems like they reinforce that. He has the conversation with the guy in the restaurant. He's like, oh, you're trying to crack a big one. That's her new partner. He tries to interrogate the woman who's part of the gang group. And the other cop pushes him out of there and says, no one's believing you. This is not a white guy. I, I don't know. I just, it seems, and, and I understand it's because, yes, they're looking past the fact that it's some middle-aged white dude who's walking around and no one's going to buy that it's him. But is it anything other than that? I'm just, I don't understand why the cops are so uh, reticent to believe him. No, no, I, I buy it. In their minds, he's already retired. It's his last day. Like, he's not going to be providing any value at all. Also, I think there's this overall feeling that he's already checked out. Oh, he's a desk jockey. Nobody really wants to deal with him. Yeah, but you have people on the street that are getting shot, right? So I just, I think that at some point, somebody might take a little bit more of an active interest in what he has to say. Well, you would think so, but they're also a bunch of idiots. Yeah, I think you would connect up the drive-by shooting part to the whammy burger. Seems like it'd be a very simple connecting piece. It's not like he's coming at them with some wild theory. This is not, uh, was it Pappas in Point Break saying that the the robberies are being committed by surfers, right? It's like, no, it's like he actually has a couple of good yeah. data points. That these these incidents okay. happened within, you know, a couple of miles of each other in yeah. downtown LA. The dude was dressed the same. Anybody want to pay attention to that? I don't know. Yeah. Just- I can see the, the convenience store being overlooked because it was such a minor kind of incident. Yeah. The uh, drive-by shooting where six to seven or whatever it was, bystanders got shot. And then someone walking into a, a restaurant 
and shooting up the place, I think those would be pretty easy connections to make. Well, and not only that, but at that point, you have the LAPD swarming the streets, yeah. right? Because they know that they got a wild cannon or loose cannon on their hand who's just yeah. pulling a bunch of crazy shit. So he's probably psycho and let's take him down. Yeah. Well, that, that does lead him to the surplus store. This is a kind of a, this is a weird scene. <laughs> He's in a surplus store. I think he's going in there to get boots because he finally realizes that the whole issue is he still has more walking to do, and so he needs to find more comfortable footwear. Who thinks to go into like a surplus supply store to get shoes? There's a Payless shoe store right there. Like, just go. Like, I just figured he shoes. was just. I, I figured he was just walking by. That was you know a matter of convenience more than anything else. I, if I needed shoes, I would not be like, oh, there's a surplus supply store. Maybe I can get some good boots in there. I'd be like, oh, let me look for a shoe store and actually buy some shoes. <laughs> Inside this store, so there is the kind of over-the-top villain, evil clerk, you know, white racist dude. It's just right off the bat, he has uh, got this really weird energy. He's openly mocking two customers that are in his store because they're gay. So he's using negative terminology with them. It seemed like they could have done a better way of making the uh, uh, supply clerk an asshole. What's the motivation here? What's the intent for doing this? I think it's to juxtapose this very obvious homophobic, racist, white supremacist person against Bill Foster. Yeah. So that the audience and he can both realize, hey, I'm not you. I'm not that guy. My problems are are rooted in something completely different. And yet, I think they he are actually guy. rooted. I think he is actually like, I just, not to that degree. There's lots of overlap in those Venn diagrams in terms of their, their problem statements. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's definitely the point of the scene in the movie is to do that juxtaposition. It's to say like, hey, he is not this guy, which that's why I think it's wrong. I think that's where Schumacher is actually has the wrong view on this. You could read this by saying that, oh, yeah, this this guy is frustrated and he's angry, but he's not a he's not a racist to this degree. Like, even though he was earlier mocking the way that the Korean store owner was speaking. I'm no I'm no anti-Semite. I'm just a racist. So one thing that occurs as part of this is he, he gets a... So where, I don't know where this guy has a laws rocket just kind of sitting around, but <laughs> very uncomfortable, very bizarre situation where he the guy goes in the back and he pulls out a container of Zyklon B and he comes over and he's all excited because the Nazis used it during the Holocaust. So it's just so over the top. I mean, it's just kind of... You can't take this guy and say, how do you come up with a more scumbag, racist villain than this guy's actions and it's just it's just so over the top i think it's maybe one of the worst scenes in the movie overall i mean it's yeah. interesting it's com- it's compelling to watch but I, th- I think it's tonally in terms of what schumacher's trying to say i think it's way off here was he also pushing the the guy's homophobic because he's actually uh closeted homosexual right which is which is the way he fi- he physically comes up is standing right behind michael douglas right yeah. that's, I, yeah. that's that was what i took away from that is that it was oh for sure and he's talking about how he's going to be raped in prison and mm-hmm. like that's his, where his mind immediately goes. Yeah, yeah. He cannot yeah. he cannot get off the the physical side. Of it's things. it's an ugly scene. It's an ugly scene, and it's just kind of this is one of those things where I'm like, whoa, this is this doesn't feel right when you're watching it. I don't know. Then that's why I think the whole movie is it's messy. Like it's not well done. It's not the point of view is not clear any way it's trying to go, and it just makes this is one of those scenes that just makes it clear how messy the movie is. Yeah, because you're Supposed to sit there and say, Yeah, no, I know I kind of like this guy because he killed the Nazi and he's not a Nazi, but he's still kind of a racist asshole. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. And then, of course, killing the Nazi sort of puts him past that point of no return. So he does call his wife at that point, and that's a pretty good scene, at least from an acting. Yeah. Um, one, th- one thing he does tell his wife during that call, though, that I wrote down was he says, 
In some South American countries, it's legal to kill your wife if she insults you. Really? In 1993? So, <laughs> I think yeah. he's just making that up to scare her, obviously. Uh, I don't know. I think he might be right about that. Well, I think you. I think maybe you can get away with it easier, but uh, I don't know that it's an official law. I guess that's what I was questioning. To your point earlier, when does he decide he's going to kill his wife and his daughter? Now I'm starting to think that, yeah, yeah, you're right, because yeah. he's talking about that. Right. I think the point of no return is where he's like, okay, I got to just go home, kill them, and then kill myself, and... It'll all be over. Just a little murder-suicide, you know. One of the next or close scenes to this is where he jumps on the golf course. And so he... Well, I, well, I think he that's where he, he fired... Doesn't he fire the rocket before then? Or is it after? Yeah, yeah no, he does. He, okay. Before the golf course, okay. yeah. But we talked about that, so move on. Yeah. Yeah, but I still think it's ridiculous that anyone... Like, you fire a bazooka at a construction site, you're not just walking off. Like, just so, like... I don't know. Well, so he's able to walk off because the explosion was like, you know, 150 yards away. Yeah, but there's this circled by a bunch of kids being like, hey, he's the one who shot the like, He's not just simply walking away from these things. I mean, it just doesn't, the, the whole thing doesn't make sense. Yeah. You guys should go down and try this in Los Angeles and see how far you get just to see what happens. <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing not, not, not far past the okay. Korean store. And this will be my last podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so from here, he does end up walking across a golf course and as I mentioned before, he goes specifically to an area where there's a sign that says no trespassing, right? So they specifically have him climb the wall where it says no trespassing. And of course, he's walking across and then he has an encounter with these, again, the two waspiest white old golfing dudes you're ever going to find in a movie. So one of them ends up, ends up having a heart attack. Again, just kind of over the top. I mean, as a again, this is another another one of those scenes where I think you're more supposed to be on his side than against him. Of course, because why do they have to have all this green space to themselves? You know, there should be children out here playing. And right. It's like, really? I think, I think that they sort of, yeah, threw that in there because all they've been doing is showing these poor communities and people of color. It's like, oh, well, we got to get out the white people too, the rich white people. It doesn't, I don't, none of it works. And then he does climb a fence and mentioned this before, but he has an encounter with a family that is not the family that actually owns the house. So here, here's a question for you. What if the actual homeowner was there? What if the plastic surgeon that owned that really big house, the opulent backyard was there? And do you think he would have killed him? hundred percent. You think so? Yep. Just, just would have gunned him down in cold blood? Only after they had a, a conversation. So in that case, you'd have to have the plastic surgery or the homeowner be something like, this is my backyard. I paid for it kind of thing. And then he would have shot him. That's probably what, what you're thinking they might be going for initially. They, yeah, you'd hear a lot of righteous indignation. Right. You know, spouting off about the differences in wealth and class and could have been interesting. Yeah, yeah but you had that with the golf course. So I don't think you needed another. Yeah, exactly. You don't really need it. Like I knew immediately when they said, oh, what kind of doctor lives here? You knew immediately it was plastic surgeon too. Like it was an obvious right. answer on that. Yeah, but yeah, the, the weird thing to me is the it's kind of the arc in this movie in terms of the where he he starts and he has these encounters with people of color. And then the last two kind of events that he has are specifically back to back with, you know, white families and higher standings when it comes to economics. So well, he worked his way through Westwood and he's in Santa Monica now or so he's making his way. Yeah, the geography West. might work OK, but I'm just <laughs> it, I'm, I'm more going for the, the tone and the intent of the movie. Yeah, because yeah, right? yeah. I, I guess. You know, it, I, I feel like it's it's a it's a half-hearted swipe at um, the situation in terms of white privilege, but I don't know. It doesn't doesn't feel like it connects. So uh, no, it does not. 
as he's heading home, there have been several scenes where it's cut back to his ex-wife and she has been talking to um, two different visits from the LAPD. One of those two visits is from, it's a female cop who is like the worst cop ever. <laughs> I she's, know, right? <laughs> she's the most lethargic. She is just an asshole. She's like, we can't sit here and wait all day because because he's making threats against you or whatever. And then and then she says something like, "Oh well, if you want to fix this, maybe next time you'll vote to keep patrol cars on the street." It's just a, it's just they go out of the way to make you really dislike this woman and dislike the LAPD at that moment in terms of if she is a stand-in for them. Was this almost an attempt by <laughs> Joel Schumacher to say, "I don't deal in stereotypes," so the the female police officer who would probably like naturally be more, more a lot more sympathetic and understanding to Barbara Hershey's plight as a, a woman who is in danger of her ex-husband. Instead, she's just a total prick. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's just a strange presentation of the police. So even the police officer that she's talking to earlier in the film, he's saying, well, you know, so she actually has a restraining order against her husband. So at some point she went before a judge and she laid out, hey, here's here's the pattern of his behavior. So I need a restraining order. The cop shows up. She's talking. He's talking to her in the kitchen. And because she says that he did not ever physically assault her, the cop is like, well, you know, we can't really do anything about this. This isn't a real threat. You know, what do you mean? He didn't really hit you. It's like he's so skeptical about the whole thing, even though she has a restraining order. It's just a bizarre interaction. Well, I, I mean, I personally was surprised they even showed up because they came out there because of the restraining order, but he wasn't actually there. So I thought they would have said like, oh, well, is your husband there? No. Okay. Well, we can't send anyone out because he's not actually there. If right. he shows up, call us back and then we'll send someone out. And so I was very surprised they even showed up and then stayed for as long as they did. Don't, don't love the cops in this. The other thing that I thought was interesting is that during the course of the movie, the early part of the movie, uh, his ex-wife is planning a birthday party for their daughter. And you see her, and, and at one point she's filling up a squirt gun. And of all the squirt guns I've ever seen, that's the best replica of maybe a 9mm handgun I've ever seen. It's almost identical in size and the look and everything. So I'm thinking to myself, and, and it's funny because wait, that uh, ends up... Wait, wait, like, wait, he, wait. What? What? Yeah. It's, oh my gosh, that the blue the blue gun. Look at yeah, it. Look at it compared to the other blue gun. Yeah, I'm right. Yes, the blue gun. The color is looks off, exactly but exactly like a nine millimeter. It's much more official looking in terms of the mold that was used. Let me say that. <laughs> okay, I think the black, or sorry, the bl bright blue plastic nature of the gun is the first thing that you notice, and you're like, fake gun. You know, just a water gun. Here's the reason why I thought it was interesting, because okay. when I saw okay. her filling that up at the sink, I'm like, wow, that looks a lot like a real gun, just in terms of the design. And then, of course, that's what he uses to pull or, or to pull a fake gun at the end of the movie. Also, the daughter, by the way, is not super cool with that gun, because you see her squirting the dog a whole bunch of times <laughs> and squirting the TV set. So I think that... Uh, was she squirting the TV set or was she squirting the fish tank? I, I just wasn't really sure. No, I thought she was squirting the TV set, and then she got busted by her mom. Okay. And I can't tell, but I think the dog might be having fun with getting shot with the water because I think he's coming over to try to get a drink. It is a lab. Lab like water. Yeah. So, water dog. So as Bill is almost getting home, uh, there's you know one more phone call from Tuesday Well, and she's complaining that Mr. Peepers, their cat. So who names their cat Mr. Peepers, first of all? <laughs> Don't like that. But You'd be name. surprised. <laughs> terrible cat name. But And she says she's bleeding to death, and then he finally stands up to his wife, and then there's this really funny moment where... 
after he puts the phone down, he almost has what appears to be like a brief orgasm. <laughs> when, you, when you watch his mannerism in that scene, he's like, oh, I finally stood up to my wife. <laughs> he has this weird look on his face. I don't know. It's a strange moment. It truly was. So he goes out to the house. Another strange choice. The wife and the daughter, they go to escape because they know he's coming. And what do they do? They run into a one-way pier that is going out over the ocean because of all the places you want to be if you think someone's trying to get you, definitely go to a location where your only choice is to jump into the ocean if you have to try to get away. Strategically, not not a good choice. Not a good choice. Yeah, I did like the shot. So like when he was coming into the house, I thought that was a nice kind of a tracking shot. It was like a single shot, Michael Douglas running into the house. And then like you see the side fence and them coming out at the same time. So I thought that was kind of kind of well done. Good job. But yeah, I, I totally agree. I wrote down like, why would you go to the favorite spot to get a hot dog? Right. <laughs> like <laughs> He's chasing yeah. you. Like, oh, yeah, I kind of want a hot dog right now. Let's Let's go there. Speaking of cool shots, too, I do think the shot of him running out on the pier, running down the pier, I thought is, was done. Yeah, that was well. actually pretty cool. I think that was a pretty cool shot because it's yeah. it kind of it starts with him further away and then the kind of camera pans down and it's right next to him as he's running. It's keeping him in frame. I, I just thought that was really well done. I think it was it wasn't needed. Wasn't anyone chasing him? He wasn't actually no. really chasing after anyone else. So it wasn't this big dramatic running scene that was needed in the movie, but it was well shot. I just thought it was shot cool. Yeah, because yeah. the family was just sitting there like buying a hot dog. It wasn't like he had to like right. run to get them. Well, and why, why if she's leaving the house at that moment, is she going to get a hot dog versus say going and finding a police officer to say, I, look, this is the situation, right? He's here. He's at my house right now. I did not understand her choice on going to buy a hot dog. It made no sense. She's there at the counter. She's putting mustard on the dog. <laughs> what the, are you doing? The only, the only thing you can think is that she doesn't want to alarm her daughter. So they need to go somewhere to get away from the house. She knows the pier. Oh, it's her favorite place. We'll go there. We'll go back to the house, you know, in an hour or something. And because he'll probably be gone. And it's not like Laurie Strode was running from the shape coming back across the street. She's like, hold on. I, I got to I gotta make an omelet. Real quick. <laughs> it's not like she's actively being pursued. She was. The guy hits ran into the house. He knew yeah, exactly. I mean, she, like, literally, she literally heard him in the house. I mean, she yes, 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 yes. But then she, she leaves the house with her daughter and they, they take off down Venice Boulevard or, or down the beach. Yeah. But he's not, you don't see him come running out of the house uh, after them. Right. So walk to the nearest police station. I'm not excusing her decision. I'm just saying, well, I, could, I guess I could kind of see it. The other question on this scene, though, was did Robert Duvall buy the popcorn and he just pick up some random popcorn somewhere? Yeah, I think he actually I, just, I think he picked it up. I think he I picked it up I, because it was the popcorn that somebody who saw the man with a gun and said, took off oh, right. running uh, okay. and they had just left it there. Because I thought that would have been a strange, strange move for the police. Yeah, I'm gonna get a, I'm gonna get a cup of popcorn. Yeah. The question is, did he pay is for still it after? Some guy inside the snack bar. I was thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, because you didn't. You didn't see the, sna- the snack board door fly open and somebody come running out. Yeah. So yeah, there, there could be somebody who's hiding or sheltering in place inside the snack bar during the whole final confrontation. So this is where you see Bill, the Michael Douglas's character, have this realization that he's like, I'm the bad guy. I do think it's interesting that he it only dawns on him at this particular moment, right? After all of his actions over the, the course of the movie. And I, I don't know. I just think that, of course, he sets himself up to be shot, uh, which he does. And then he does kind of a cool backflip, actually, off the pier. I think that's a, that's a pretty good entry into the water. I think he kind of hits the uh, water in the same formation as the as the triple indie, but I'd have to go back and verify that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good... Uh, that's kind of fun. They, they go back to her house, so the ex-wife's house. 
And the other thing I noticed just from a shot standpoint is, so you have Robert Duvall who is sitting on the steps with the daughter. That's a nice little moment. And then as, a, as kind of a tracking shot going into the house, it just focuses on one cop's ass. And it just follows the cop's ass like into the house and then it, and then it pans over and that's where you have the, you know, the videotapes that are being played because... Oh, all I saw was the, uh, the cop's baton whack his daughter in the head oh, did it? As, as he walked by <laughs> oh, I, oh i missed that actually i didn't yeah, see that it was kind of it wasn't huge but it was it definitely brushed her head yeah what i thought was strange though was when they're at the pier it's what the sun's it's, it's still bright out it's, the sun hasn't gone down yet and then when they finally get back to the house the media has already shown up the captain's there he's doing an interview and they're still like wheeling his uh, partner who got shot they're just now wheeling her out of there it's like a couple of hours later and she's still like, okay, now I'm finally going on that ambulance. Like it took a That's while point, for that actually. to happen. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't really make any sense. Yeah. The only thing worse than the LAPD are the paramedics. <laughs> Take their sweet time about that one. <laughs> so I got a question. Yeah. If Robert Duvall hadn't been three cars behind Bill Foster, there would probably still be, there would be like three dead people at the end of the day. Only way that they knew it was him, they identified him, was because he remembered the license plate. Yeah. And that was it. Is that right? Yep. Uh, yeah, I think so, because that's the, yeah, he, at one point he runs up the hill. Uh, that's how they know to go to the Venice uh, location. Yeah. If they look up, then they go to his. Uh, and he's the only bills. one who's like connecting the dots between these crimes. Yeah. Well, so I had another question, which was based on the, the condition of his mom's house. And based on the fact that it sounds like his wife is renting, what kind of salary was he earning while he was working as a defense contractor? And, and what happened to his money management? I'm not sure he went too far up the ladder because it doesn't look like he earned a lot over, or at least not sure where the money went. Any theories? Drugs? Women? The ponies. ponies. He liked to play the ponies. Secret yeah. family? No, so. ponies. Hey, he was what, what if he did take action on what if he you know what if he's responding maybe there's a there's a side story here which was his money management is, is part of the problem here so it, he dug his own hole unlikely but you know all right anything else any other closing thoughts or any, anything anything you want to point out in terms of trivia or interesting things you found out from a research i did find out that they that the production was halted at least temporarily due to the outbreak of the la riots which I thought was interesting because I was there at the time. That's so really all I have to a... say about that. But it just sort of, it's like, oh, yeah, this is definitely an L.A. that I remember. I also remember a lot of the the, the poor air quality and the smog, which you, say, which you see in this film. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to say that in a lot of films nowadays that you see in L.A., you don't see that smog anymore because yeah, it's a, lot a, lot of it, a lot of it's gone. Yep. Um, other thing that I discovered, which I had not realized up until this point, is that the Foo Fighters, when they made the video for the song Walk, which is actually probably, that might be my all-time favorite Foo Fighters song. Um, How does it go? Surprised, surprised I've never seen the video. How does it uh, go? No, I'm not, I'm not going to sing it, no. Oh, come on. I, I don't, I'm not sure that I know that one. <laughs> well, again, I'm not going to sing it. Come on, just Check hum out the video. it. Just hum it. No. Hum it. So, I'm not come doing on. it. Nope. It's okay. Uh, anyways. It's okay. So, go ahead. So the video actually is... So you have you have Dave Grohl and he's dressed up in the exact outfit from this guy and he get, he does all the it's basically that he just they're replaying this movie in the video it's pretty funny like all the scenes where he's running along he's on a golf course at one point and he has the horn rim glasses it's pretty funny it's worth checking out so all does right. he see it ironically or is he doing it because he sees uh, Bill as the hero of the story I think they're just doing it somewhat as a stylistic homage I, I'm not getting the sense that I, I think maybe because. 
he walked in the video a long distance. <laughs> Maybe that's why they chose it for the song. Uh, and just as a, to be funny, I would assume. It's a great song, by the way. Highly recommended. Okay, so let's get to closing thoughts. Closing thoughts of the letter grade. Colin, you said you like this better than you expected. So how would you wrap this movie up? How would you, what would be your overall takeaway and summary for this movie? I think my takeaway would be if you saw this in 93, definitely watch it again. Just so you can see how perceptions, your own perceptions especially, may have changed. Um, If you've never seen it before, well, it's just a really interesting movie. So I don't, I think it's, again, uh, I was entertained. I thought it was really actually well made. What I really loved the most was just seeing how wrong it was. And, um, and that was just so really interesting. But the movie does move along. I mean, it's, 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 like, it's actually well paced. I, I think I thought it might have been slower originally. But no, it, it, it goes. It's got some good performances as well. So, yeah, you, you jump. I didn't expect it to jump right into it as, as quickly as it did. Yeah. So I, maybe from like the social experiment standpoint, it's it's definitely a, a good watch. Marcus? I what, did you, What's your letter grade on that, Colin, overall? I'm going to give it a B minus. Right. So for me, I would say skip it. I did not really enjoy the movie. I thought it missed. It's just very unclear on what it was trying to say. And it was just saying a lot of things um, didn't quite make sense. Like, I don't know what it, what the goal of the movie was. And I don't think it did a good job trying to explain what its goal or issue. And even if that was the point of the movie was to say like, oh, it is unclear. I don't think it even did a good job of that. It's very clear that Bill is a jerk. And he's not the hero of the story. To me, that's quite clear. Throughout the movie, it mixes that message. And I don't know. I did not enjoy it. I thought it was shot poorly. I thought it was not well told. I like the story overall. It's kind of interesting. A guy gets fed up in traffic and kind of loses it. It's kind of an interesting storyline. But I don't think it did a good job with it. And I would probably give it a C minus, maybe a D plus. Interesting, because the whole, like, guy gets fed up in traffic and loses it is exactly why I hated the movie to begin with. Yeah. And now I just, I, I just think it's more interesting from a the social, you know, social and cultural perspective. And so actually I, I, w- I will, I will amend what I said, which is that if you've never seen this movie and you're like in your early twenties or something like that, just skip it. Don't, don't bother. Yeah. <laughs> really. That, that's my All idea. it's going to do is it's... make you mad. I would be, actually, it's interesting because, I would be super curious to, uh, and I don't really want to set this movie again, but I'd be curious to see what Mia would uh, uh, would, would think of this. You know, somebody who, who who has no perspective of seeing this in 1993, just somebody who's going into a cold. I'm, I'm actually really curious. So actually, somebody somebody out there who has not seen this movie, give it a watch and then let us know what your take is on it uh, because I'm, I am really curious. Yeah, I think your view is not going to be favorable at all. Because I think any of the scenes that try to make him relatable are just terrible. He's just such a jerk in like the movie. Like he's not, he's not a hero in any sense. So that's what the one thing uh, you said that he's not the hero. And then I suddenly thought, like, oh, was he meant to be sort of an anti-hero back in 1993? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I actually I think that that's the case. So this was my pick, and I will ultimately say that I didn't, I don't really like this movie that much, but. I, I'm glad we watched it because I actually thought it was really fascinating and interesting to watch. So I think overall as a movie, if you want to be kind of challenged, isn't really the right word, but if you want to, if you want to, if you want to watch a movie and try to figure out what the, 
what the end result was versus the intent. And if you're not totally sure, this is a pretty interesting movie. I'd kind of lump it into, was it like Spring Breakers and um, a few other <laughs> movies that I'm, it's like, was it Assassination Nations, another movie that comes to mind where I'm like, what am I watching here? I don't, I don't really know. And so I, I find this movie to be confusing in that regard. You, you might have me changing my pick. Spring Breakers is fantastic. <laughs> so much I don't fun. I know, man. I mean, that's... A, that's a, <laughs> it's only um, weird movie and so strange, but it's like so much fun too. Like it, like it embraces its strangeness in a... I don't know if that movie's kind of good or if it's horrible. <laughs> like I, I honestly don't know. And that's, yeah. Alien's fantastic. So I do think, if I didn't say it already, that Michael Douglas, I think his overall performance in this movie is really good. I actually think it's a, it's a really good performance. I mean, you see him the tension just building and him kind of going squirrely. And then when he has the, you know, even some of the visuals and, and the close-ups on his face, I think that all is, is actually done really well. I think it's very effective. I think we have the, you know, the crack of the glasses. So, you know, you have the, was it the straw dogs look with those glasses cracked and the, and the sweat coming down his face and all that. I think um, once he shifts into the, the black, what do they call it during the uh, like G.I. Joe. Joe outfit? Yeah, uh, I think I think it, it's kind of from there. It's a little bit more downhill. I think I think he, he works. Was, was it G.I. Joe or was it like Banana Republic? <laughs> well, it's kind of funny because they Sprockets. reference that he looks like G.I. Joe a couple times. I'm like, yeah. I don't really associate that outfit he's wearing with G.I. Joe. Yeah, me <laughs> either. Yeah, I just I thought, I thought that he was, was going to stretch. He was going to invade Guatemala or something. Yeah, the main, main thing for me in this movie is I can't tell even watching it now. What what exactly Joel Mocker was really going for? Because it feels <laughs> oh, like we called him bit. Joel Mocker now. Was that <laughs> we're going to call Joel him Joel Mocker? Oh, did I just did I just slip and consolidate Joel Schumacher? <laughs> oh man, he he totally missed out on a really great nickname. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah. So so I'm not sure what Joel Mocker was trying to do with this movie because I, I honestly feel like he was he was trying to walk the 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 tightrope between trying to make a legitimate or tell some sort of legitimate social message. But I think, I think the perspective from which he was coming at it at the time was completely off trying to interpret this movie today. I think it's just an entirely, it's completely flipped on its head. And in some respects, it actually, it works if you just want to look at this guy as a entitled asshole all the way through, right? And and you don't actually generate any sympathy for him over the course of the movie, then maybe it's, it's okay. I don't know, man. This is just a really weird movie. I'm glad we rewatched it. It's not a movie I'm going to be watching probably ever again, I would think. I think for the most part, and I think it's... it's. I, I also enjoyed reading some of the articles about people just taking this movie apart because uh, it is, you know, if you want to... You can obviously just rip it to pieces really easily and just say that it is the most tone-deaf uh, thing ever. Um, I'm not sure it's that. I think it's somewhere in the middle. I think it's just a mess ultimately. So yep. I'm going to go ahead and just give it a C, a solid C. So that, that's what I'll do <laughs> because I'm not really sure what it is. And that's my, that's my hot take on this movie. <laughs> Again, I, I think that the value in this movie, which is why I ultimately gave it a, a B minus is in looking at it through today's societal and cultural lens, seeing just so wrong certain things are. And, and it's, so it's, it's, it's very interesting from that perspective. Well, and in particular, the things that are wrong are the things that were presented as being right. sympathetic or right. Exactly. Right? And, yeah. And, and so the fact, and the fact that it's yeah. you flipped it completely is just that makes it an interesting movie. I, I do think it, it's a it is a compelling piece of cinema to watch just to sort of wrap your head around. Uh, and I do think that the movie itself is actually well made. I think the pacing is pretty good. I again, I think the performances for the most part are good. I don't know that the visuals are all that spectacular. I do think there are a couple of cool 
sequences and cool shots in it. This is an ultimate time capsule movie. We were talking about the fact yes. that In the Line of Fire is a time capsule movie. This is one hell of a time capsule movie. Yeah, <laughs> totally true. Yeah, good call. This, this is like, you know, do not watch past 1985 or something like that is what you'd want to stamp on this thing. But I don't know. It was made in a movie from the future. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, 1995. <laughs> All right. Well, I think with that, we're at the end of uh, falling down, unless you guys have anything else you want to throw out there. No, I think that's it. Well, then we are on to Marcus's pick. And again, this is not constrained by you at this point, Marcus. So it's any movie you want to see. What movie any, are we going to be doing next? Any movie does not need to be in 1994. I would like to reiterate, it does not need to be 1994. <laughs> you do not want to watch my pick? Come on. I don't know what your pick us. is. What do you got? I would like to pick the 1994 Oliver Stone masterpiece, Natural Born Killers. No, Jesus Christ. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. There is there is no such film. You, <laughs> you said it was called a ma- you said it was a masterpiece and that's just Natural uh, Born Killers. You mean masterpiece of shit? I know you guys don't like it. I think it's time for your, uh, a critical rewatch to embrace okay. it. I promise to go into the viewing with an open mind knowing that it's probably <laughs> my most hated Oliver Stone film by a mile. Can I just say I tried rewatching it a few months ago and I got about eight minutes in. I had to turn it off. Uh-oh. Okay. Well, it looks like we're set up for what could be a very interesting conversation <laughs> on our next podcast. And you know what? I, you know, I reached out to one of our guest hosts and he said he would be interested in uh, in in doing that. So maybe this will be uh, a chance up. for Jamie to uh, take my spot. No, 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 Colin. You have to do this one because you specifically don't like this movie. So that's why you have to do it. It's a fun. It's fun. Yeah, come on, we'll do it. We'll, we'll, the three of us will do it, and then we'll we'll actually uh, we, we still need to clean up Colin's miss on True Romance. So two of us will join Jamie for that. Okay, fine. <laughs> All right. Okay, so coming up next after this podcast is going to be Oliver Stone's 1994 overly edited something Natural Born Killers <laughs> masterpiece. It is. If we want to go uh, over the top, this this one takes it to. To 100. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. It's a shyster piece. I think we can definitely close the book on falling down. uh, (laughs) And again, probably put the book back on the shelf and not take it off again. We hope you enjoyed our long, confusing ramble about uh, God knows what, as we discussed falling down. And uh, with that, we'll say this is the Real DMC Podcast. Signing off. Bye, everybody. Don't order breakfast after 11.30. Oh, Colin. Um, before we do jump into this, I just have one question. Do you think that you could walk from downtown LA to Venice Beach? He's from Pasadena. I know he's from Pasadena. No, no, he's he going like, from Pasadena to LA. I know, but I think I don't. They don't start off in Pasadena. Like he, I think it's because he, he abandons his car is 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 right around downtown LA. I think so too, but I don't think that was supposed to be downtown. It, w- I mean, it was near down. I think it was like Silver Lake-ish. Because he also goes like at one point he's in Hollywood, and that'd be like further, like kind of northwest. I looked it up too. Like I, I, I know the Google says it'll be eight hour walk from. Ah, Pas- so I'm glad you did this. Pasadena right, to I was, Venice. I was about to do this. Yeah. So Google said from Pasadena to Venice would be eight hours. I assumed he like left his work wherever he was supposed to be. Maybe he wasn't even in Pasadena because like he never went to work. So maybe it was downtown. Maybe he did start there.
So I, I think he was, yeah. he went from Pasadena and he was downtown. Like, I think he was around like an, a 110 off ramp or, or something like that. Yeah. That right interchange. Around Elysian, he... right, right around Elysian Park. And then, um, he, and then he walked. You guys are going a little there. deep on the, on the LA geography. <laughs> oh, sorry, no, I totally know. I know exactly where that interchange is that he abandoned his car. It's, it's right on five. And there's like, it goes down to like two lanes right there. And so it's huge. Yeah. yeah. I know exactly where that is. And so, you, so eight hours it... from there, it'd be probably closer to six hours. So yeah, between like six and eight hours. Mm-hmm. But that also like, I don't but that's even like, know. That's like walking constantly. Yeah. Which he was it, not doing. No. But he also, he did a couple of like, he like hopped over the hill and stuff like that too. So I don't know if, uh. I didn't. I didn't map the whole uh, walking route. Going too deep, in. dudes. Going too <laughs> deep Pull on up. the walking route. Honestly, <laughs> it would be. Uh, it's. I think the timeline is. It wor- somewhat works. 